Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Drew Meredith, welcome to this Two Cents episode on the Australian Investors Podcast, mate. The best part of my week. It's always fun, isn't it? I'm just going to get this loop behind me. Uh, nice t-shirt. Buy the effing dip. Direct quote from Warren Buffett. For those of you that are watching- I'm sure he's never said that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he says that all the time. Uh, I don't even know if you can see it behind the camera, uh, behind the computer. Buy the effing dip, says this t-shirt that Drew is wearing. Mine- did, I did not purchase myself. I'll I be may clear. have purchased it. <laughs> Uh, this one here says, Enron, Head of Ethics and Compliance, 2001. What's an Enron? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, how old do you have to be to remember Enron? 50. 50. I'm 40. 2001. So, we are in 2022, which would mean numbers. <laughs> I mean, we studied the Asian crisis in, uh, at uni in 2001, 2002. But was the Asian crisis 97? Yeah. Yeah, right. So, maybe the generation after that. Generation after this generation. So maybe like the, the if you Late were 2000s. at uni in the late 2000s and then you graduated straight into the GFC. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet. So today we're talking uh, about your, we've got your questions that we're going to answer. Um, we are going to talk about a few other things like what we've been working on. Uh, I would like to get some airtime on this thing. Crypto in SMSFs, Drew's opinion on that. Um, <laughs> Very bullish, I would imagine. <laughs> so, uh, and then we'll talk about some great questions that are sent in. Remember, if you send a question to any of the RASC websites, there's a thing in the menu. It's quite complicated, actually. It says, ask a question. And then you just click the button and you go through and you select the Australian Investors Podcast. Or if you want the Business Podcast or the Finance Podcast, you can do it in the same place. But uh, Drew and I are on the Investors Podcast. Uh, we will award... Uh, um, oh, an award for the best questioner name. So, you get to choose a fun name. We've got a cracking few in here. Um, so, we will award that and then you just have to write into us and somehow, some way prove that you were the person that asked the question because we don't take any of your personal information. <laughs> so, speaking of, as always, I know this is the fun part that everyone just gets like they just love this part where I say that any of the the answers that we give are limited to general financial information only. Drew is a financial planner and you can get in contact with Drew at waddlepartners.com.au and he's the type of person that can give you personalized advice. On this podcast, we cannot do that. So, be sure to speak to your financial planner before you act on the information. I like to think about it, Drew, as infotainment. <laughs> that would suggest we're entertaining. <laughs> I was thinking like we call it two cents. Because people give their two cents on something and you're like, oh, that's nice. Uh, but then it's spelt two cents, like common sense. And there's two of us. <laughs> it works on so many levels. <laughs> okay. So, uh, I might start off with maybe not a question because it wasn't really- It was a question, but it's more of a talking point actually. Mm-hmm. And this comes from Heath Moss, aka Micro Traps. Uh, there was a bit of confusion in the- um, the, the, the Twitter thread that we're on. But he basically asked us- Is this where you've been tweeting me and trying to yeah, encourage I've been looping me onto you into the everything. platform? But he basically said, maybe a rundown on the changes in the financial advice industry. He's an advisor. And he said, in the last 10 years, have been some pretty big moves when it comes to regulation, compliance, and education. So, for anyone that doesn't know, um, 
there are basically two primary forms of financial information in Australia or advice. There's general advice, which is the thing that's been kind of thrust into the spotlight. But then there's personal advice, which you get from a financial planner. And they, it depends, but what would be the minimum cost for personalized advice? Three grand? Yeah, for comprehensive advice, it's usually about three three thousand dollars or so. Yeah, comprehensive being you know everything from insurance, superannuation, taxation, and every part of your financial situation. And the reason that advice has probably gone up is you could tie it back to regulation, but also a few years ago there was a massive clampdown on commissions and these types of things, which used to sub in a Subsidize, Air yeah, quotes, yeah. subsidize advice. Yeah. But they, it wasn't transparent. So that's why people got, you know, we got rid of it because it was leading to bad outcomes. It was always disclosed, but obviously like any disclosure of a payment, it, it somehow ended up in disclaimers and in very small print at the back of statements of advice. Yeah. Um, and I think every two to three years in the last, every year, I think every three years I've been in the industry, there's been significant change to advice. Um, yeah. When we joined, when I joined the original firm, which we think is almost 40 or 50 years old now, not not the one. Yeah, <laughs> Drew is only 40, but he's been running the business for 50 years. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it, was the, it was the first fee-for-service independent firm in the country. So, it, it refunded commissions. Oh, well, it, um, it was always, uh, it, it operated on an hourly basis, which when in hindsight, it's the most challenging thing you can do, you know, record your hours and then invoice directly for those hours. It just, you can't run sustainable businesses that way. Yeah. Uh, but over the 20 years since, or f- yeah, 20 or so years, pretty much that, that has become the standard across most of the industry that not everyone can call themselves independent anymore, but it's very much fee for service and it's very clear on what you're getting. Um, which, which is good because a financial professional is a professional. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's great. I didn't know that you like the Wattle Partners business was the original, the OG. Yeah, Austin Donnelly. So you, you probably talked about his books on here before. Yeah, Something yeah. like 35 books. He was known for being an expert witness to sue financial advisors <laughs> back in the day. <laughs> when they, I mean, originally they came as insurance salesmen. So they knock on your door, sell you an endowment policy and get a, a fat commission on the back of it. And that's where the industry originally came from. Yeah, right. And it's evolved a lot, even in the last few years. Yeah, and the thing now is people, and I've I've got to admit, I'm in this camp, Drew, where people, it's got to a point where personalized advice is so darn expensive. Yeah, most people can't afford it. Like when I say most people, like the majority of Australians. Um, and then the other problem is when even when you get the advice, it sometimes feels or often feels like it's written by a lawyer. Yeah, because there's like, like what's a statement of advice like? It varies, but maybe what, 40 Asic pages? wants it to be yeah, 20 or 30 pages, but 20, 30. but it's very difficult to meet your compliance obligations in doing it that way and also providing enough information. Yeah. So, I think everyone's the, the quality of advice review is, is going on at the moment. So, it's basically reviewing all the additional legislation that's been added in the last 10 years. Yep. Uh, and the initial part looks great. It's simplifying, redu- like reducing the need for a statements of advice and giving more flexibility to the advisor who is now more professional than they were 10 years ago to determine how to deliver that advice. Yeah, because most people would rather, and I made a joke about this this week, most people would rather spend, get general advice, kind of educate themselves, and then spend the extra four grand going on a trip to Europe. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) Yeah. It puts people off. Everyone talks about this affordability question, which we also, I also, I wrote an article on it recently, which is, I mean, what's affordable? When we provide advice to a client, we'll give them a, you know, a 25-year strategy that can, probably save them uh, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars over that period. Yeah. So, is $3,000 expensive? I don't think so. That? No, I but don't think so. Yeah. But that's the challenge. It is when it's an upfront expense. Yeah. People are accustomed to things coming to them, like information now. And yeah. you look at a mortgage broking business. Like, if you knew that basically every mortgage broker gets three grand yeah. from a loan, you would think, well, I'm not going to pay that. But- you're gonna. It's still gonna be a good outcome because, yeah, yeah. like, uh, you know, and that was the whole debate for so long. So, what do you think then is we are, we are waiting to hear what the final thing will be put to government is, but the draft proposals are out on this change. Do you think that it's going to become easier for people to get advice? Like, if you had a hunch, I think so. So you've had a we've had a period over the last three years. We talked to a lot of financial advisors, and a lot of them gave up clients and just said, we can't service you anymore because of the legislation that came in after the Royal Commission. Yep. So, in some cases, if you have a couple 
that have two different super anyway or two different super funds in a personal investment portfolio, you have to get three to four individual forms signed to be paid a fee that they've agreed to pay <laughs> you, uh, as well as disclose that fee twice every year. So the amount of paperwork involved with a small client just becomes yeah I- incredibly high, and it makes it difficult to service them and yeah. and run a business without having you know fifty administration staff helping. And this is the thing. Um, so that will definitely help. The like my business. So I most people know this that listen to the show. But if you're new, welcome. Um, my business is built on general advice. So we don't yeah. give one-on-one. If you give us your information, we can't do anything with it. Yeah. Whereas your business is built on, you get, if you give us, this is a thing with personal advice, most of the time it's in for a penny, in for a pound. If you give us one piece of information or give you one piece of information, then it becomes comprehensive. Yeah. Um, you can do something called scaled advice, but that's not as common. Um, I think that's where the future is though, in, in more needs scaled yeah. and probably product-based. And that's why the quality of advice review is talking about bringing superannuation funds and insurance and, and banks back into the industry, obviously with a pretty tight regulatory setting. Yeah, and this, this thing is like, if you, you know, maybe I'm a little bit different, but someone should be able to walk up to you and say, hey, Drew, I've got this loan and I want to invest this way. What do you think? Like, yeah. you're an expert. You should be able to take those two pieces of information easily and give them some advice. Just like a health professional does. You do two questionnaires, uh, financial services guide, yeah. statement of advice, even a limited statement of advice to do that at the moment. And then if I need to be paid a fee, I have to get a consent form. <laughs> so and if that fee's ongoing, I need an opt-in as well. <laughs> so there you go. Like, and it's, that's just, it's just bananas. It's like all legislation. It's, you know, ebbs and flows to overly restrictive and then and it's no different i think the uk has been pretty similar they went almost yeah. too far in one direction and they've they're slowly releasing that as well the cost of advice i've seen some advice from over there and it's exceptional like you're talking like four percent upfront for for some groups that's crazy yeah so i think we can do this um we are all waiting not just here in the office but we are waiting to see what happens because i think for the most part we are pro like bringing the barriers down. And I think at the same time, we're also pro advisors being educated. Like I think that's just, a should be a minimum hurdle. You have to be educated to give advice. And that's why what you're doing on all the podcasts is so valuable because you're you're providing general information to help people and guide people and providing yeah. them a source. Yeah, that's where the business, the business exists really. Yeah. Um, and so we should be at, we should, yeah, final thing on this, because I know it's boring, but- uh, <laughs> Less like, laughs than usual. <laughs> yeah, less laughs. We've started off very serious. Thanks. I've got, got a good gag, gag coming. Heath. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. no, Heath knows I love him. Um, so, yeah, the, the thing is, like, we exist because of this, and um, I think that's great, and I think more people taking control of their finances is wonderful, but we just want to make sure that the people who aren't interested can still get advice because they're the people that are most vulnerable. Definitely. So, um, hopefully, watch this space. We, we, we are keen for it. Um, okay. Could <clears throat> my prediction be correct already? Have you been watching markets the last two days? Uh. <laughs> Inflation, yeah, actually, lower than expected. I was actually tweeting the kook today, actually, of all Jerome people. Jerome Powell. Overnight, suggested rate hikes will slow before the end of the year, which is already December. What did I say? Bond yields? No. Cash rates will yeah, fall before the end of next year? Rates, They're said. ready to fall. They're ready to fall. Wait. <laughs> I could be right well before. This could be This could be your defining moment. Look at the market. The NASDAQ was up 4% overnight. Oracle. Um, yeah, no, I was- Where's my tweet? The Kirk put out a, um, put out a tweet saying- uh, that a three-year yield, so this is on bonds, another really fascinating and And you don't like duration, do you? Is 3.08% and the 10-year yield is 3.46, which is way down, way down. Does that mean duration's paying off? It will be, yeah. So, this is where I think we mentioned this a few times. You've said this. We still have, like through our general models inside Rascore, I mentioned this to our members last month, is that- the, the number one consideration in my mind is it is before Christmas is do we switch back into government bonds? Yeah. Because we're, we're seeing the, the wash through of those higher, higher yields now, which is really interesting. Definitely. So- We started that process last quarter okay. in, our, in our quarterly reviews. Started not, not a lot, you know, maybe 5% of portfolios, mm-hmm. 5% of a total portfolio. Started going back in duration because the risk of rates going significantly higher was becoming 
less likely in our view. Yep. Um, and I think you're still looking at a period where rates are going to be lower than they have been historically. You know, we've increased incredibly quickly, great, but no one knows what impacts that, that's going to have on the economy. And we know yep. if there's a recession, what banks, central banks are going to do straight away. Yep. Um, yeah, so if you are a member, you can watch this space because I'll probably be out in the next week with something interesting in this. There will be changes that I'll be making. Super boring. Super boring changes, but there will be changes. And I think they're important for the next year. So I mean, it just changes the paradigm. If you can get three point, you said 3.2 on a three-year government. So that's just the government bond. Essentially a guaranteed bond. So you can get 3.2%. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's why mark, share markets and property markets are falling because you can get a better yield on low-risk investments at the moment. Yeah. Um, and we still haven't seen the wash through of the economic impacts of higher rates, which will then put downwards pressure on it. Exactly. So Drew's <laughs> prediction. <laughs> Whenever I do this, I'm way off. I'm pretty sure I said inflation won't go high. I'm pretty sure one of our most popular episodes last year was like- Inflation. Transient inflation. <laughs> <laughs> like every forecaster, I'm always wrong. Yeah. But a broken clock can be right twice a day. So, exactly. So if we make enough calls- one of them may be right. If we predict everything. Can I deflect from myself? We can and call us a hybrid fund manager. <laughs> Did he just go there? Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, go on. Can I deflect from myself and put pressure on the RBA? Would yes, be- you can. <clears throat> Quote time. So, Philip Lowe, governor of the RBA. Yep. Predictor made- of rates. <laughs> so, this is like one of the smartest institutions Apparently. <laughs> yeah, yeah, here we go. They, they can't sue, can they? No. Uh, in Australia, employing so many professors and doctorate and all this sort of thing. And, you know, we all remember back in 2020 where they told us that interest rates wouldn't go anywhere above zero for four years. Until 2024, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And then they did two years earlier than expected and you've seen property markets fall. <laughs> <laughs> they should have that at the RBA, have the RBA meeting every month. <laughs> every time. It's, I mean, like the inflation data this week was 6.9% and everyone was predicting 76 yeah. How do you get it so- I don't understand how it's so wrong. I mean, I don't even try to predict that, but it's yeah. every forecast seems to be wrong all the time, but we still follow them. More gas. We need more gas. His, uh, so, Philip Lowe, well, I'm certainly sorry if people listen to what we'd said and then acted on- what we said, and now regret what they have done. <laughs> so that's regrettable. Was <laughs> was the length of his quote? So this is telling people that interest rates would be low, and you understand why he did that. You know, animal yeah, spirits. Confidence. You're trying to get people to keep borrowing and keep spending when they're locked down at home, and it worked. That's why we've probably got inflation at the moment. Why property prices went crazy is because they, everyone had confidence to keep spending, and it worked. It was a, to be honest, it was a once in a hundred year. Yeah. You know, global pandemic. pandemic. Yeah. So, <laughs> like that wasn't too like, wrong. Yeah. Uh, but it just, I don't think they've kind of appreciated how much risk taking that spurred on, particularly in property and the impact that it's had since. So, you've seen, I've spoken to people who had, you know, lost in mean, probably a negative equity already on properties because yeah. they leveraged up so much. And you haven't even seen this rollover of fixed rate loans, um, which is set to occur next year. And interest, you know, loan repayments could go up double. They could double or more yep. in a short period of time. So so then interest rates may come down. So don't listen to the RBA, I think is what Phil Lowe is saying. <laughs> We're surprised you listened, but thank you. I, to be honest, I know, I agree, right? Like that that was a pretty audacious prediction. Yeah. He, he and every senior decision maker in the world needed to make bold choices. I, for one, I don't know if you let that prediction inform your investment strategy for advice? Did you do that or did you- Not for advice, but I think this is the challenge. If you're, a finance, if you're in finance, you kind of understand that you know, interest rates can't stay low forever. But yeah. if you don't live this every day <clears throat> and you know, the most powerful, one of the most powerful people in the country says interest rates aren't going, well, I, I don't, I'm not surprised people took that as cause to leverage up. I guess it would have been like- 100% octane for the um, mortgage brokers and the, the real estate agents. Yeah. And I get that, like, that's not healthy for the system. But at the same time, like, I feel like we, we, we will battle with this for forever is the, the, the responsibility between, you know, the state and the individual. Yeah. Where the rubber meets the road on regulation is the question. And some people want it over there. Some people want it over there. Um, I feel like I, I did not change anything about my behavior because of that media release. Yeah. I understand do you, why. Do you think he'll apologize when he 
when the recession hits. Or <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry for hiking rates too fast this time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, this, yeah, that's the thing. Like central banks have always been blunt, right? Yeah. Like you just squash this, squash that. Um, I feel like, to be honest, I feel like what we're seeing in the system, this is my totally uneducated opinion, but I feel like um, what we're seeing in the system is reasonable to control the issues that we have. Yeah. Like I feel like there's already enough pain coming. You don't, we don't need to- Oh, the rate hikes that we've yeah, done so far. Not, yeah, yeah, I don't feel like we need to go straight back the other way or make predictions this way or that way. Like, well, Predictions uh, don't work and you have to let things flow through, but there's kind of this constant need to, to act. Like even before this inflation data came out, everyone was talking about, oh, if it's higher because of fuel, then we have to increase rates again. But it, does, yeah. no, it doesn't have an immediate impact. Yeah, that's it. Um, so just hitting and hoping. Just to bring this back down to reality for most people, what this would mean in practice is that, you know, for property, obviously, we've seen a huge boost in property values. We'll probably see continued weakness in that asset class, generally speaking, um, just because rates are higher than they were. Like you said, you can get 4%. If you're a retiree or you're an SMSF or you're a even no matter what you're doing with your money, you can get 4% by sticking it in the bank. You don't need to go and leverage into property. You yeah. don't need to um, invest extra into shares, for example. But the, the catch, the flip side of all of this means that your yield on those assets will go up, yeah. which is a natural segue into my next point, um, <laughs> which is from JP Morgan Asset Management, sponsor of the show. Thank you very much. Uh, came out with their long-term um, forecasts this week. So this, this is what they call... The 2023 long-term capital market assumptions, this is the 27th version of them. And they basically, like they're not alone in doing this. And when it comes to macroeconomic forecasts or what's going on in the economy, Australia wide and globally, this is something that I tend to lean on because I, I look at these big institutions who have global presence, many well-paid economists and analysts to understand what they think. And more connection with the actual market. Generally. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So they're really well resourced. And this is, I'll, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes, but I'll, I'll, I'll chuck in a direct quote here. And this is from um, JP. And it says, our forecast annual return for a US dollar 6040 stock bond portfolio over the next 10 to 15 years leaps from 4.3% last year to 7.2% this year. So 4060 is not dead. Yeah, 60-40 even. 60-40. <laughs> Not dead. Um, but that's that's good news. So if you're investing now, and they won't be the only ones that come out with a forecast similar to this, I'd imagine. Yeah. But that's good news because all of a sudden we've had huge compression from well, Your starting no point's rates. lower. Yeah. yeah. And now we have increased yield on assets. So this is across the board. So this is what for accumulators, this is good. We talk to new clients all the time. And you know, compared to two years ago, this is- a significantly better time to be deploying capital, yeah. Because every, you had you couldn't invest in government bonds two years ago. Nasdaq, all these markets were at all time highs. Yep. Now that everything's thirty percent cheaper, and yeah, you people are worried about calling for another bear market or a fifty percent crash. They'll always call for that. Yeah. Um, but it's still significantly better than it was a few years ago. Yeah. So basically, I think I agree with you, Drew. I think this is like good news, like. For the most part, um, as the, the, no matter which asset class you look at, things with a long-term view, which is what we tend to do here, is good. You know? And the lesson we keep taking is not blowing yourself up yep. when the market crashes. So, you know, if you're too long in hyper growth, if you're in too much crypto, if you're in all these things for the last six months, then you, haven't, you, you can't get the benefit of the cheaper assets that you can buy now yep. because you've kind of blown up a portion of your portfolio. And that's, yeah. That's just that old uh, recency bias where people have a couple of years of positive results from some strategy they're pursuing. And you comes double down. down. And yeah. then you double, triple. It happens every time. You know, oil, yeah. even oil at the moment. So oil prices back below where it was at the beginning of the year. Lithium. And everyone was predicting $200 a barrel oil and it's back at $80 a barrel. Yeah. Um, some of these last longer than others. Yeah. Some of these go on for long, long periods of time. Some of them do not. Uh, there is an interesting thing. I'm glad you brought up crypto. <laughs> so uh, crypto is the last topical thing we'll talk about <clears throat> before we get to your questions. Crypto inside SMSFs. Yeah or nah, Drew? <laughs> it's a blank face. Uh, <laughs> I think if you're young, you know, <laughs> 
if you're young, having crypto in an SMSF probably makes more sense because you have to be patient. You know, you have to keep it for 40 years and you can't touch it. Yep. Uh, most of my clients are retirees. So, I'd, I'd usually say that, the, you know, crypto investment doesn't necessarily meet, meet their objectives. Um, but I, I don't. I don't think it's a significant problem. It's just like holding a micro cap, uh, le- you know, a leveraged micro cap stock. I um, disagree with you there. <laughs> don't put it anywhere. <laughs> Shouldn't be in super. It's like the per- it's low tax environment. You can't touch it. Yeah, but it's not actually even anything. <laughs> like no one knows but what I, it's going to be. I don't, I don't even like crypto. <laughs> like the thing is, right? I. It's like venture capital, so don't put venture capital in super. No, I'm, like uh, you're investing you, in a productive asset. So this is the difference, right? <clears throat> really, I, I think venture so, capital is productive assets. Hit, well, nine out of ten might fail, but the one that gets through <laughs> will do something positive for society. Sounds like crypto. Agreed. Like if we just took two measures, which is what academia wants, they want return <laughs> versus volatility, and then come up with an answer by variant analysis. You'd probably say crypto venture. Very similar. Venture just doesn't change its value. <laughs> well, true. They don't mark down, so it's all good. Um, <laughs> so, so, wait. This is what I put out on Twitter, <clears throat> which is, as we know, the place where the truth is shared. We do disagree occasionally. <laughs> yeah. I've said crypto was never meant as an investment and still isn't. It was purely a way to lure people into Web3 <laughs> technologies, and that's worked. And that's what I think. I think that the, conspiracy cri- the cryptocurrency, <laughs> <laughs> the cryptocurrencies themselves, you, the only way you could value them is supply and demand. So even then, yeah, yeah, even then, it's still hard. So maybe there's this is we are in the realms of speculation. Isn't that so. how you value listed stocks? No, that would be technical analysis. How does the market value them? Discounted cash flow analysis, and- plus or minus fifty percent. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the thing is. The, the people people are calling for regulation of crypto because FTX blew up, and now all the other ones are blowing up, like BlockFi yeah. and all that. Um, but you can't have regulation of a decentralized thing because then it's not decentralized anymore because you'd have to regulate it by bringing things in-house. Yeah. I've made this point on Twitter. You don't have cold storage of NASDAQ shares. Isn't or- Twitter just all crypto? Well, I've got an NFT as my display picture, so I, said, I actually said that. I may have NFTs on my for my bird app, but that's never been about money. It was purely to understand the mechanics of the Ethereum blockchain. They say it's a really bad form to quote yourself, but and then you did it anyway. So, But th- this is a thing. I genuinely think that Web3 technologies are impressive, and I think it's a thing that is important to understand, and I think there are benefits to it. But that does not necessarily mean you need to invest in the cryptocurrencies. Yeah. If I was a software engineer, I would want to be learning about Ethereum and different layers of the blockchain, but I would not be buying cryptocurrencies. Yeah. And definitely not inside my superannuation fund. I think that the reason I think that that shouldn't be allowed is because if you stuff it up, it's not you you pay because you have to then rely on it's the pension. To balance. Yeah. But then everyone else has to foot the bill because you have to rely on the pension. Same as if you buy a property or any other investment that fails. True, but the like, what if you're property buying has like web 500 years technology. of history. <laughs> what if you're buying Web3 technology in, in your super fund? Well, or if it, you're investing into a, Web3 companies? Yeah, if that's a company, it's, you're investing in the equity. It could still blow up. Yeah. But it's productive. It's a company. I, I mean, DAOs are probably different. Decentralized organizations. Like- don't buy the dip. Look, I'm saying the opposite of buy the dip. I'm just saying just put your money in something safe inside super. Do whatever you want outside I mean, no, of super. Never put, you know, no, don't trade crypto. But if I'd always say if you're going to hold, like if we've got a client who is younger and need, you know, is, needs the income, has other expenses, and they want to invest in some of these you know, longer-term asset classes, super kind of meets that, whether it's micro caps, direct stocks, tech stocks. That's That's where my kind of view comes from. Because it's forced. Like, the only way you can force yourself to make non-emotional decisions is not having access to the money. Yeah. I think there's, there, are, there are some but amazing- But I agree on all the crypto. There are some amazing things happening in Web3. Like, the work that the team at Immutable are doing in Sydney, which is incredible. It's basically, you can have a digital asset which you can take anywhere with you. They're currently focused on gaming, but that could have use cases beyond everything in a digital sense. Yeah. <clears throat> so, I- 
Like there are some fantastic things. And I'm not saying that it's all a joke. I'm just saying we shouldn't be able to put it in the, the currencies themselves inside a superannuation fund. Yeah. If you want to buy one of those ETFs that invest in the crypto innovators or something like that, that's you're still getting equity. But the actual currency itself, I don't, I just don't. Yeah, I just. Yeah. Anyway, I'm going to explore. Agree or disagree if I on going. that one. Yeah, we'll, just, we'll table this to next time. Have your have your say. Write into us at Drew. What's your email? <laughs> Andrew Derriman yeah. at Waddle Palace. Yeah, Andrew. <laughs> All right, so that's um, oh, actually there was one little little sneaky thing in here. Um, we haven't got to any questions yet. Yes, Sharon. Okay, we're yeah, tw- shit. Um, so we'll be quick. But there was a, a, a story of Sharon and Alan Saul, who have a quarter of their SMSF tied up in cryptocurrency in a cryptocurrency broker that's frozen accounts. Yeah, I mean that's like we'll, we'll move on. That says that doesn't say anything about the currency though. That tells you about the broker. T- yeah, like, but that's what people are called. <laughs> just spread across the room. Um, that's what people are saying about um, like FTX, the, all these yeah, things. The like it's exchange just, needs to be regulated. Yeah, not the currencies. The exchange needs to be. If you're going to hold capital on behalf of other people, of course you should be regulated. And we don't deal on people's accounts. Yeah, um, but then they have to regulate crypto. No, they just have to make sure you actually have a balance. Like FTX, have you heard all the things that happened to FTX? Yeah. They just took customer funds, put them into another company and made massive DeFi bets with it. Yeah, but like- this is, this is, It's like a bank. Yeah, yeah, it is. I'm not saying, I'm not having, saying you're wrong, yeah. but I'm, I'm, I'm saying yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but, but the thing is, if you start regulating the exchange, the exchange has to verify assets according to regulation, which then means you have to identify the assets, which you can't have invisible assets, right? So then it has to be, everything has to be accounted for, just like a bank or an exchange for okay, stocks. Okay, boomer. <laughs> The boomers are the ones that get angry when I say this stuff. Like they're the ones like Bitcoin's the future and all this stuff. Like, anyway, let's get on with this. So we've got two questions that have come through. Talk quickly. <clears throat> two questions have come through. Split the difference says, why is BlackRock running a stock split on the IHVV ETF and what did it mean for investors? Second one is IP Freely. <laughs> IP Freely says, iShares recently did a stock split for the IVV ETF. Which I think is we the- have a winner. <laughs> it's pretty good. And it is a disadvantages to this. Thanks. No disadvantages. Just a lower unit price. Yeah, I think it's something we covered, I can't remember, three, four, five weeks ago. Could even have been years ago, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, essentially, they're just making the ETF more affordable to a bigger range of people. You still get the same exposure to the market that you would before. Yep. Um, but we talked about, you know, buying one unit of IHVV, which is like $260. Yeah. And if you wanted to get a DRP on that, well, you're not going to get it for an extra unit for like three years. Yep. And this obviously allows you to benefit from DRP and not having your um, cash held by the registry. Yeah. It probably impacts the profits of computer share and link as a result. Yeah. So, there's a lot of words in there, but um, <laughs> yeah, basically you get 15 units for every one that you held. Yeah. So, if you wake up and you've got like a Google spreadsheet and it's like down 80%, it's not. It's just you got more of the units. Yeah. So, you have to adjust for that. Um, it's actually a good thing mm-hmm. because it means that people with lower balances, like Drew was just saying, can do dividend reinvestment plans um, or buy smaller parcels. Exactly. So, so you don't have thing. to save up 350 yeah. to buy one unit. And I think from memory, when I looked at the announcement, there's about a five to 10 day transition period where there's like they have to transition across to the, the new units. Um, but that's it'll all be it worked out in the wash. I mean, the Global X Gold ETF did it recently yeah, as well. Yeah, that was a five for one, I think, yeah. or four for one, one of those. Tesla did it last year. I remember a mate called me up. He's like, Tesla's down 75%. Should I buy it? I'm like, no. <laughs> it doesn't make any well, difference. The amount, of phone, like, the amount of phone calls we got when gold did that, because we hold it in every portfolio and everyone saw yeah. it go down 80%. Yeah. And like, limited understanding of yeah my api on the website still says that it's the original stock price and oh, it yeah. just looks like a cliff so yeah, if you yeah. look at the gold etf on any of the ras websites apologies um hands down thumbs up question mark says howdy i dropped a small amount into a couple of etfs to try them out but i've since learned a bit more and don't plan to buy them again i kind of want to sell them just to keep my portfolio tidier and more streamlined and not have to pay for share site if i get too many holdings i guess this doesn't seem like a smart financial <laughs> rationale. Is that on purpose? <laughs> I, I didn't put this in there. So this is a fantastic question. Uh, thumbs up or thumbs down? Get rid of it. Yeah, sure. If it's a small it amount of money, it. it's outside your core. Why overcomplicate not it? Not personal advice. Get rid of it. Yeah. I don't know what they are, so I'm not providing personal yeah. advice. Yeah, we don't even know <laughs> who this person is. 
and I'd say, I mean, what I try and do, which is difficult when I look at my portfolio, is look at a blank sheet of paper. If you, you know, you bought it on a whim and you look at it today and you don't know why you hold it, well, why keep holding it? Yeah. And if it saves you on the fees, the admin, the headache, yeah, sure. I'm, you know, the, the, the older I've got, Drew, the simpler <laughs> things have become. And I think most investors go on that journey. Yeah. You, know, you can have your core of just really s- simple stuff. If you want to have like this Wild West portfolio, put that in a different brokerage account. Yeah. <clears> um, <throat> go and do that. You know, great. I mean, a lot of our retiree clients have 50 individual holdings at some point. So, yeah, that's why we try and start afresh every time. Inside Selfwealth, so you can actually track the um, sponsor of the show, Selfwealth, thank you. Uh, you can actually track other investors and you can see what the, the best performing investors are doing with their portfolios. It's pretty cool. And- I would say like the majority of the top 10 all the time. Index. Yeah, majority index. And then they might have like two or three bets around the side. Yeah. And that's just like, that. I'm not, that's like, it's a generalization, but that's basically what most of them have in common. Yeah. Which says a lot. Uh, Scrooge McDuck. I'm pretty sure we've had Scrooge McDuck on before. Scrooge McDuck. <clears throat> says, hi, all. Considering investment strategies inside an industry super fund, there seems to be a lot of fancy options with high costs, but they don't outperform the index fund options year on year, in my case. Based on this, I have chosen to keep my super only with the Australian and international ETF options. My question is, is there any taxation benefit to holding the majority of funds in the Aussie shares option? Do you still get any benefits of franking credits inside your super? I know super is taxed at 15%. That's great. But if you get fully frank dividends, does the super fund apply to get the other 15% back for you? Out of interest, what would be the best splits in super? 50-50, Aussie to international. It's a multi-pronged question. That's Yeah. It's like an analyst on an investor call. <laughs> Please limit it to one, one question. <laughs> Seven questions. I have a- This is a four-parter. You're <laughs> <laughs> great. I, was, I had four different answers, so- Okay, I mean, the, go for it. The first one was talking about Comparing to the index fund options, so I'm always wary of. We've had quite a few clients who will compare their. We run a balanced fund for them, or we run a balanced portfolio, yeah. but they'll compare it to the ASX from the bottom of the market, yeah. or compare it to cash, or compare it to something else. And obviously, you need to make sure you're comparing apples for apples, yep. oranges for oranges, not apples and to oranges, oranges. <laughs> citrus and whatever. <laughs> it doesn't match. Yeah, which is just the first one. So make sure you're comparing it fairly, even if you break out those parts of your portfolio. Um, the taxation benefit. So, if you're holding, so like a member direct option and holding the ETF, then yes, you will be credited the franking credits for that. Yep. But if you're holding the Australian shares option within a fund, the franking credits would be included in the unit price or the crediting rate that you get every day and generally right. used to offset tax. So, you wouldn't actually see them. So, okay. You don't get a refund or a, an offset. Yep. But the, but the super fund is taking that into account, like the franking credits. Yeah, I mean, uh, my understanding is that those frank credits can actually be used to reduce tax for the fund more broadly in that yep. option. Uh, so, you don't necessarily get the direct benefit of them like you would if you held the ETF yep. from a member direct shop option. Yeah, right. Okay. So, it doesn't flow back into like the consolidated revenue of the fund. It just sits in the unit price. Yeah. So, when you see that performance chart, it's already tax adjusted. Yeah. Yeah, right. Interesting. I believe. Yeah. This, this is, is a quite challenge technical. with industry funds. Yeah, yeah we wouldn't it's know. It's very hard to find out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and if you you can, I I just operate on the general assumption that any Aussie shares taxable entity can claim the franking credits. Maybe there's an accountant that works in this that can write into us. If you do, yeah, uh, please let us know because we would be interested to know this how the big funds would adjust for this in their options. Yeah, it's important because if you do allocate to Aussie shares, a massive component will come from dividends and franking credits. So you want to know how those are treated. Um, if you have an SMSF, obviously you have more control. Uh, good, good one. Um, what about the split? Do you think, like, if this is an all-growth portfolio? That's, I mean, that's the way we generally split internally. You start at fifty-fifty, and you look at valuations and go, you know, are they Australia's probably overvalued compared to the US at the moment because of our high energy and materials exposure. So that's when you might tilt more towards US. But fifty-fifty is our starting point. Yeah, sweet. More generally. Cool, like it. Good one, Scrooge McDuck. And I feel like you've asked a question before. Maybe you could give us a number next time. It's Scrooge McDuck 3, Scrooge <laughs> McDuck 4. Um, I think this next question was from blank. I don't know. I feel like maybe I lost the name. Wouldn't be the first time I've misplaced things. Uh, hi, guys. I am looking into opening a share trading account with some research at CMC Markets. are rated as one of the best overall platforms. 
Why is it that I never hear anyone speak on podcasts about it? What do you guys think? Now, I think there is another question in here. Uh, yeah, further down from Wayne Keane. <laughs> Wayne. <Not> Wayne. <laughs> Kerr? No. No, Wayne Keane. Be careful, Drew. <laughs> Hi, Owen. On the 19th of December episode, I heard your rule of thumb about having a minimum of 1500 bucks to justify the brokerage fee. I currently invest with CMC Markets. And is, C- I- is CMC Markets um, <laughs> sending in, in questions? They're in the DMs. <laughs> uh, and they offer $0 brokerage on trades of less than $1,000, which I use all the time, dollar averaging and all that goodness. That just, make, that just got me thinking, am I paying in some other way, such as increased spread? What are your thoughts on this? So basically the question is about, okay, so just to recap, if you haven't listened to that episode on the 19th of December, please go back and listen to it. I basically said that there are calculators you can use online if you put in some assumptions like how much you want to invest or save and invest for dollar cost averaging, and then also what the brokerage fee would be, and then also like your expected return from the stock market over the long term. And a lot of it, just as a rule of thumb is, you want around about 1500 bucks if you're paying $10 brokerage. That's generally yeah. like where the math shakes out on average. That's not always the case. You can invest obviously with less than 500 bucks if you invest through a custodial broker. CMC markets offer this thing where you can, I think you can place one ETF buy a day up to a thousand bucks for free brokerage. As far as I know, CMC markets is a HIN based broker meaning that it's not a custodial model. You actually own the underlying shares. I'm almost certain of that. Yeah, it is. Yep. Okay, cool. Um, And so it makes a lot of sense. Like the impediment to investing is obviously the upfront brokerage. Now, why do they do this? Well, they do it because they get you in the door and then they hope you do something else. They hope you then go and trade something else. Forex, CFDs. Yeah, that sort of stuff. I think most people don't talk about CMC because a lot of people on these podcasts are more buy and hold longer yeah. term and CMC is much more suited to traders and yep. people trying to do technical analysis yeah, or- Yeah, that type of- Yeah. Wonderful. And that's, I've used, looked at CMC and Saxo and they're all great platforms, but I just get confused pretty quickly and yeah. like my old <laughs> easy to track <laughs> platforms. Uh, yeah. I don't talk about any of the brokers which offer CFDs. Yeah because they are absolutely devastating for people. Yeah. They ignite people's money and they are super profitable because they're at the expense of everyone that goes onto the platform. So you'll never see <laughs> Rask talk don't about hold, don't hold back. <laughs> anything that has anything to do with CFDs. I got invited to a CFD event not too long ago. And they said, oh, we'd love to, for you to be on the panel. And I said, sure. sure. You, have you Just heard so my you know. <laughs> and then nothing. <laughs> I think there's a crickets thing on here. No. No, don't know which yeah. one it is. <laughs> okay. So, we don't talk- I don't talk about it because of that connection. Um, if, C- if CMC markets want to drop that CFD side of the business, which they're not going to do based on my opinion, um, <laughs> go for it. Uh, I, you know, there are plenty of brokers out there. And I don't think- Because they're hidden based, they're, they give you that- um, that identifiable number. I don't think you're paying in any other way. And they should have a best execution policy as well. So every broker has to tell you if you do at market orders, how they implement that yep. order. Um, and for the most part, they're all pretty consistent. Yep. Yeah. Uh, next question. Uh, uh, million dollar move, 10 cent finish says, hi guys, love the weekly banter. Thanks. We're not sure. We never know. <laughs> to be honest, we're like, we're we too far. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wanting to know your thoughts on Telex Pharmaceuticals. Drew, I feel like this is right down your alley. Have had some positive news lately. It seemed to be trending in the right direction. I don't know if you know anything about Telex. I don't know that much. It gets brought up a lot. I think it's like a rare, like a cancer radiotherapy treatment. Or tells you how poorly educated I am on these issues. I, I talked to Luke, who you had on the podcast about this one. Luke, yep. And he just talked about... Uh, you know, very difficult to understand medical companies. And I've, obviously, my wife's in medicine, yep. quite a few doctors uh, as clients. And whenever I bring one of these companies to them, they say it's a great idea. But how does, I've, like a lot of them, have net, I've, they have very difficult things to ever deliver and commercialize. I'm not sure whether that applies to this one, but medical is always a crapshoot. It's probably the way to, to talk about it, particularly when it's experimental. I'm not sure. I think it's 
in operation, this one? Yeah, it's got uh, 55 mil of quarterly revenue. And then how do they become scalable and how do they protect their patent? Um, and as with all medical and less so mining, what happens if something goes wrong or yeah. doesn't work as expected? So I kind of see these things as being very momentum driven. Like it's a trading trading holding. Yeah, I. so I, this is, we didn't actually talk about what we did have been up to this week. I interviewed a guy called Jeremy Cook, who's been in biotech investing for 40 years yep. this week. He's going to do the opposite of what I just said, isn't no, he? No, no, no. It's no. It actually confirms a lot of it. I also interviewed him while interviewing Dr. Megan Baldwin, who's the CEO of Opthea on the yep. ASX. So, because we get a lot of people t- wanting to talk to us about biotech and it's like, well, like we don't really, we're not like, we don't understand it. So, we're not going to allow you know, to come on the show and pull the wool over our eyes. Yeah. So we got them together. So we got the the expert investor plus the CEO together. And basically what they talked about is that <clears throat> at different stages, there are, there are like four or five major things a biotech has to do to succeed. Just like a resources company has to identify the resource, get funding, build the program, execute, forge some rail connection or a port connection then sell the product. There's a lot of steps involved. It's the same with biotech. You need to go through the stages, the clinical stages, and each stage there's more and more likely chance that you will fail. Yeah. Then you've got to have your team willing to sell, so either in Australia or the US predominantly. Then you have to make sure that the physicians and the doctors actually use your product. Yeah, sales and marketing. Too. Sales and marketing, so that has to work. And then you have to scale it without blowing up the P&L. So it's quite hard. Incredibly difficult. And that's why with these things, I think you just got to go into it with a understanding of each step along the way is very, like it reduces risk, yeah. but that's why the share price goes up you know, accordingly. Yeah. And it's very hard to get in front of that trend consistently. Uh, m- my friend and uh, many investors will know him, Matt Joss from Maven Fund says, what we're looking for is we're looking for companies with competitive advantages that we can predict, right? But how can you predict something that's going through clinical trials? That's because the reason it's yet. going through it, because they don't know. This <laughs> is know? the problem with CSL in Australia, isn't it? That it, it, you know, everyone could buy it at two dollars at one point, yeah, or ten dollars or whatever it was, uh, and it's it shows you how good, great companies can be, yep. and everyone's looking for the next CSL. Yep. And if you do this, you can just take a diversified approach. You know, there's yeah. a global biotech ETF on the ASX, I'm pretty sure. Um, you can just take a diversified approach. It's We've always said this. It's when you go further and further into the realm, towards the realms of speculation, you just want to diversify. Diversify yeah. its position size and becomes more and more important. Uh, middle-aged millennial no lycra <laughs> mammal says, happy 40th, Drew. Um, as someone of similar vintage, like a good red wine, I've been thinking about how to approach asset allocation and rebalancing towards defensive assets over time. Should it be incremental percentage increase each year from a certain age? Do you take distributions from the growth side of the portfolio and reinvest it in the defensive? Do you set the percentage allocation of growth versus defensive based on age? Um, And when you start to factor in sequencing of risk of returns, I know the answer will start with, it depends. (laughs) Just like to hear your thoughts on what it depends on. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> Give the people what they want. Uh, I mean, it's, I'd throw it all out the window. Anyone that tells you there's a rule that says you should buy a certain amount of fixed income or other assets that that'll guarantee or not guarantee, but is this is the best way to invest? I think is kind of not naive, but oversimplifying what's incredibly complex. Yep. What does it depend on? Depends on what your objective is. So, if you need a certain amount of income and or returns from your portfolio, then that's the way you should. That's the first thing you should be looking at. You now, if you've accumulated enough capital to invest your whole, you know, if you got a million dollars and you want forty thousand dollars a year, well, why put it anywhere else but a term deposit? And that applies whether you're in your forty, fifty, or seventy. But if you need more income from that, if you want to grow your capital to keep up with inflation, if you want to leave assets to your children. Uh, or family. Um, what about life cycle funds? The ones that, you know, slowly balance. Well, what is it? The last two years has kind of shown you the challenge of that, hasn't it? So, forcibly increasing your bond exposure into what was the worst period for fixed income investments in 40 Ever. years. Like, <laughs> yeah. why would you be deliberately yeah. increasing your fixed in- traditional fixed income when interest rates are at zero? Like, 
I, I think yeah that's the problem with those yeah rules based balanced funds like the Vanguard funds I think it makes sense to be having less uh, risk in retirement and where our balance is probably moving back towards an actual balanced yep. as we look at clients because you can get more income from your low risk component now um, yeah but I don't think there's any sim- you can't rely on simple rules it needs to be very objective based I would just say also the other thing to keep in mind as you do this, um, mammal, is- Mam minus L. Mam minus L? Yeah. Okay, no lycra. Yeah, you're right. Uh, you can consider your taxable scenario. So, as you transition through time, yeah, is can you use income? Like, if you have periods where you're not earning as much, can you- secrets away from certain things and you sell at the right time for that reason it's not the only reason but it's just something to consider like if you're going to be earning a lot more money in a few years maybe you can put in place something now to predict that and make the transition easier for you in time we'll always have an saa so we'll determine what you expect what the kind of return you're looking for we'll build an saa so a strategic asset allocation what we think you should have at most times in each asset class Uh, and it's not necessarily taking money from growth back into defensive, but it's rebalancing to that SAA. So, the last six months, Aussie equities have outperformed global. So, we'll look to rebalance from Aussie into global or fixed incomes uh, underperformed or underweight. So, we'll look to rebalance back to that strategic asset allocation and that strategic asset allocation is what's tied to your individual objectives. If you could could get the the JP Morgan 60-40 stock bond portfolio that we mentioned at the top with their long-term forecast, I just imagine there was like a Model guaranteed, take it. Yeah, will you take the seven point two percent? Yeah, guaranteed. Interesting. Rule of seven, so it's going to double in seven years. Yeah, guaranteed. Yeah, ten years. Yeah, ten years. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I know my rules. <laughs> Quick math. Uh, so I got two more questions. Wonderful questions. Monica says, "I am very new to investing and just setting it up. I have a." Well, Someone, when you were, someone's complaining about your Cyber Monday code. You missed that. Oh, yeah. I actually don't have that in the doc. But um, yeah, Cyber Monday code. We did do a sale and I turned the coupon code off by mistake. <laughs> so when I put the marketing out, people who tried to join our RAS course service for $1.99, Drew. $1.99. That's all it costs to get the ETF models. What do you think that? That's general advice at scale. Um, so Monica says, I am very new to investing and just setting everything up. And this, I feel like, is a tautology or no, an oxymoron because the next line is very, starts to get very complicated very quickly. So, Monica, what I mean by this, I'm not calling you an oxymoron. I'm just saying the two things don't really line up. Um, I have a family trust and a company linked to it. Now, I would like to set up a bank account that would be used for trading and linked to a platform like Selfwealth. Fantastic. Which bank would you recommend so that they can support trust funds? Thanks. So, if you're very new to everything, Monica, I think I know what Drew's going to say. Try and keep it as simple as possible. Exactly. Um, this went from, we, we started off pretty slow, we went to really complicated quite quickly. <laughs> so, let's quickly talk about this. I mean, the bank account depends on what you're looking for individually, which we don't know. Yeah. What we've found, I mean, no, not even what we've found, the most popular bank account for SMSFs that are investing in Australia is a Macquarie cash management account. Okay, interesting. The main reason for that is because it provides a clean data feed into every tax reporting system, every platform and every you know every accounting platform. Macquarie is probably the best in terms of data. Um, so Macquarie cash management account. Yep, and the interest rates are right. Down. But then I was one of the one of our team members showed me today that Macquarie savings accounts have actually got the best interest rates. Yeah, they're so good. We like, talk about them all the time. Yeah, on the finance r- podcast. ridiculous. Um, but like we've 4%. always used the CMA Crazy. because, as an advisor, it helps us, but also has a good data feed into most platforms. Yeah, Macquarie's got some pretty unreal term deposits at the moment, and great security as well. Bloody silver donut, just getting it done. <laughs> um, they also have fund all those not loans to just they're making keep, somehow. Not to just wave more of the flags for Macquarie. We should just walk down the street and just put There's a, no branch. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, we should just like wear Macquarie t-shirts everywhere we go. Um, well, they've got my loan, so. Another thing that they do really well is they've got their marketplace, which you yeah. know about. You can get discounts on basically everything just for having a Macquarie card. Never seen it. You've never used a Macquarie marketplace? No. It's like a thing where you can get like 5% off this, 10% off that. Like, it costs you nothing. Yeah. Just for shopping with those brands. CBA has the same thing. Yeah. Uh, 
We don't talk about CBA. <laughs> uh, for, now, if that's for an that's for a SMSF, right? So this goes down, Monica, a path of SMSFs, which I think for many people, an SMSF is a bit of a misnomer in that it sounds self-managed. It sounds like you do it all yourself. But this is really, if you're going to go down that path, Monica, please get expert advice. Definitely. Please. Like it's, we're, like we here, we champion doing it yourself. But if that's what you're using this for, please get advice. Um, now for bank accounts for a business, if that's what this thing is, which is very similar to what I have set up, I use NAB. Yeah. It is so easy for a business. I think most of the startups, most of the medium-sized businesses that I deal with use NAB. Unless you can see they've got that Alfred terminal. That's the um, CBA terminal. And they want to be with the screen. It goes beep when you tap your card. <laughs> Don't they all do that? But this one does it very uniquely. Beep. <laughs> that one. Uh, you can tell that they're with CBA. But for the most part, yeah, for business, I find NAB to be very, very approachable. We use and NAB stuff. and Macquarie. Yeah. Yeah, those, those are probably the two standouts. CBA wants to challenge that, but yeah, that's where it goes. Final question, and we're coming in hot under an hour. This is great. <laughs> Just given our <laughs> intro went for 35 minutes, yeah. it's a surprise. <laughs> I think the questions are great because they're more focused on like actionable things for the whole portfolio, which is wonderful. Yeah. May I ask a question? Oh, this one's going to be right up there on the podium, I think, Drew. Hi, Owen Drew. Love the podcast. Is that our- that's how Brangelina. <laughs> Brangelina. Owen Drew. No space between Owen Drew. It's kind of like Andrew Derrimuth. I think I need one of those. Uh, <laughs> Not with your last name. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what would- If you can write into us and let us know what it would be. Uh, we're happy to introduce ourselves as Andrew Derrimuth and whatever else you want to call me. Um, hi, Owen Drew. Love the podcast. Thank you. What would you think of a hypothetical model ETF portfolio that replaces- of the emerging markets allocation, just say it's like 10% of a portfolio, with thematic ETFs like SEMI, ACDC, FANG, or others. How would you compare this to an emerging markets ETF that's passive or active in terms of risk and other factors? So basically saying, emerging markets is risky. I'm not sure if I really like it. Can we put something else in that bucket that's similar and does, does the same type of thing? Disclaimer, I'm a Asia bull. <laughs> That makes sense. If you can see, Drew, you know that he's not actually a bull. He's a human. <laughs> but he <laughs> but is, likes Asia. But he likes Asia. Equities. I, I do like Vietnamese food. I very much love Asia. I like Vietnamese. to China. Love a banh mi. Oh, banh mi is not from China. No, it's from <laughs> Vietnam. <laughs> anyway, we will talk about how good Victoria Street is in Melbourne <laughs> after this. Um, so <laughs> I know what I'm having for lunch. Uh, go for it. Uh, I think you'd be doubling down. So I don't like the concept mainly because I see the I feel like the risk reward profile in Asia and emerging markets is significantly better than most areas at the moment. Like the valuations significantly lower and the economic outlook for those regions compared to the developed world is much better. But I'd think mo assuming you have a core and that core is US S and P, MSCI, all the normal things, you're essentially doubling down on the thing on the key factors that are driving that. So if you're adding semi ACDC and FANG, you're just adding more tech, more consumer, and more forward-looking. Whereas if you go to emerging markets, you're going to get a more diverse range, but more importantly, you're going to get a, uh, an economic exposure to economies that haven't that aren't falling from their peak, but are actually going to re be returning and growing over the next ten years. Um, is this when you say emerging markets? Do you say emerging markets ex China or including China? Always including. Always including China. Yeah, ex Russia. Ex-Russia. That's like a tiny bit of the index. Anyway. Everyone's ex-Russia now. Um, even FIFA, I think. So, <laughs> so Go Socceroos. Go Socceroos. Um, so, yeah, I, I... So, when I think about portfolio construction, I think in one sense about the expression of what you're trying to do. So, how do you express a view? Yeah. There are only two reasons that you invest in anything, in my opinion. It's growth and income. Yeah. And so, if you just took the growth and income and you just put a magnifying glass around all of the things that you could search for the best of that, it seems like a logical conclusion to look at these things in place of emerging markets. I tend to agree with you, Drew, around emerging markets. I'm not an Asian bull. I would probably prefer, I, I love that the Chinese companies are growing and the economy is growing for the most part without the restrictions and all that sort of stuff that's going on at the moment. 
but I do tend to want to deflect some of the geopolitical risk with a view. So maybe yeah. tilting towards India and those types of places, which is, yeah. I don't make that decision Indonesia, myself. Korea. Yeah. Yep. I let the active management in that region do that. Yep. Now, for may I ask a question? That's the questioner. Um, I, I, you could build a portfolio, but make sure you understand what you're getting. Like if you did the FANG ETF with that 10%, for example, you're getting the big tech stocks, which are already in the NASDAQ. You're just doubling down, yeah. Yeah. So I would probably not be inclined to use that as a vehicle. That could be a tactical bet as a different part of your portfolio, like in the satellite, but not for the core of the portfolio. I'd be doing something different. If you want to do that, you'd be doing something different like global small caps yep. or maybe sector, you know, yeah, finding actually- sector ETFs that aren't overweight in the rest of your portfolio. So mm. energy, maybe not energy, but <laughs> telecommunications. Can't face, but that was, that didn't come out right. <laughs> <laughs> that was just the first one that came up. <laughs> but, but you actually raise a good point there. If you're thinking this way, you should probably look at global small caps. Yeah. Because that's going to not be included in a lot of those indices, those big index funds that, you, that we talk about in the core. And you get some true diversification. Yeah. Outside. So you can still get like American or European companies, but not in the index. So, and they're not tiny companies when we talk about global small caps. We did the masterclass on it. These are still five, 10, $20 billion companies. So they're not tiny speculative things. Uh, so that, that's another consideration. But yeah, I, I like to have EM in the portfolio. I don't, I think active management, I still prefer. There was a question that came through, I think it was via Twitter. Um, I can't remember the questionnaire, but they asked about, please send all your questions through the form on the, on the website, please, 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 um, which will be a link in the show notes for next week. So please drop them in there. Um, there. There was a question that came through at the best India-focused ETF. We've talked about this. There aren't that many. There's the Global X, yep. uh, Nifty, I'm pretty sure. And then I think there's one from- NDIA, isn't from it? From BetaShares, yeah. Yep. And, and then there's uh, some direct, there's India Avenue yep. we talked about. Mugatan. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there are ways to get exposure to India directly, which you might also explore as like a small allocation within that 10%. Uh, for the most part, I like just to leave it to the experts in uh, active EM. I mean, I spoke to a PM uh, who focuses on Asia, mm. and he essentially he runs a hedge fund and a long only fund. And he was saying, don't invest in the long only fund for the last I mean, about for the last eighteen months or so. And now, at the moment, he's seeing the greatest opportunity mm. uh, with an economic turnaround to come in twenty twenty three. I mean, one thing was talking about how we how the media and how we cover China in Australia or anywhere makes it difficult to warrant investing there because it's always negative and always worried about yeah. Taiwan or there's an uprising at the moment. And then we're still, re- he was saying, we're still reporting riots that have stopped. They're probably the same as probably happened during the pandemic here. Yeah. Um, yeah. We keep keep reporting them and it makes it very difficult to justify an investment. Yeah. You know, one of our super popular episodes recently, which I was somewhat surprised by, was the episode with Will Hamilton, you know, the one yeah. that we did in Noosa. Um, People were surprised. Oh, no, I was just surprised at how popular it was yeah. in terms of like a lot of people wrote and said that was excellent. It was really good because Will had basically no notice. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, hey, mate, do you want to uh, jump in here? Yep. <laughs> uh, but I, I, one of the things that I remember him saying in that is basically like he sees the next 20 years is EM. He's very bullish yeah. like you um, on EM. So, yeah, I, yeah, great. I, have some have some exposure to it, regret minimization and all that. Um, so upcoming on the podcast, we have uh, the live show basically is in the next week. It's Friday the 9th at 6 p.m. Friday the 9th at 6 p.m. There is a live stream happening on the RAS YouTube channel. Drew will be live answering some questions. <laughs> we will have Lee Matthews, the AFL legend. We'll have Victoria Devine, founder of She's in the Money, Equity Mates, Glenn James, the founder of My Millennial Money. We'll have Dr. Sam Hupert, the co-founder and CEO of ProMedicus. We will have all of Australia's biggest kind of finfluencers there. Does that include me? You are a finfluencer, <laughs> according to, I don't know who, but you are. Um, we will have a reveal of Aussie Firebug, Australia's biggest fire personality. We will have uh, heaps of wonderful ladies up on the stage. 
sharing their views on lifestyle design, investing, and finance. We will have Luke Larative from Seneca, who has been on the show recently, and we will be answering questions live via the live stream, but also in person with 250 people. Excellent. This is all happening next Friday night. Let's see if we can pull it off. If you want to be part of it, we will be doing giveaways on the night as well. It's all on the Rask YouTube channel, and that is the place to go. There's a chance if you ask a question in the next week, it will be answered live in the live show. So be sure to watch. Share, please share the live stream with your friends. It's not just about investing. It's not. We're not going to get into the weeds of a discounted cash flow analysis live with 250 people in the room. It's about comedy as well. It's about stand-up comedy <laughs> from Drew and I. We'll probably wear similar shirts to this, Drew. Uh, and what we want is we just want people to be involved in the conversation of investing in money. So please share it with your friends, share it with your family. If you own a pub, stream it straight to your pub um, and get around it. We will support your pub in this endeavor. So- Drew, we've got a lot to get to in the next week, but I really appreciate you joining me on the show today. What's your, do you put your email address public anymore? Or? Yeah, of course. What and is it? Quite a few people on LinkedIn too. Yeah, what's your- uh, Andrew Derrimuth at, <laughs> <laughs> at Drew at waddlepartners.com today. If you are interested in financial planning, particularly if you are in or very close to retirement, please seek out a financial planner. Drew is one place you can go. Obviously, find others online if you- think we have very poor taste in jokes, but drew at waddlepartners.com.au or waddlepartners.com.au slash contact. You can find me at Owen Rask on Twitter as long as Elon doesn't blow it up in the next few days. And um, <laughs> I'll see you in person or live on YouTube. Uh, thank you for sending in your questions. Send them in. There's a link in the show notes. Drew, until next week, thanks for joining me. It's good to see you. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.